upon marking number 216, number 216, as we were asked to do, might we give some thought tonight to a continuing study of the book of Hebrews. But certainly, again, if I might, let me just take a moment to um, make an invitation to anyone that might be interested to come and be with us at the Hebron Congregation. Uh, again, over in White County, just out of Sparta there, I'm, I'm guessing about nine, eight, nine, ten miles, something like that. It was asked this morning by one or, or two individuals as, as the service is closed about the roadways to take to get to that congregation. And I must confess that I don't remember the name of the road, but take West Bachman Way, I think that's the same as Highway 70, going towards Smithville out of Sparta. And as soon as you pass the Corinth Church of Christ, take the first left. And then travel that road. It's not more than a couple of miles back on that roadway. And the church building sits so maybe a tenth of a mile just off the road to your left. So if you're interested to find it, you might uh, be be happy to uh, call call Denise or me. And we'll make certain to get that roadway or give you some extended directions if you'd be interested to come. Again, that gospel meeting starts next Sunday morning, uh, April the 3rd or 4th, and goes through the, the Friday night. Uh, Sunday to Friday, 7 o'clock on each of the evening services. As you study the book of Hebrews so far in this series of lessons, we have come to appreciate the word superior on a number of occasions, be it the superiority of Christ over and against a number of rather significant matters. And all the while, we've been reminded of the greatness of Christ in every regard. Some of the opening thoughts tonight, perhaps by way of remembrance, might bring some of those to our mind, be it Christ's superiority to the prophets, his superiority, in fact, to Moses, to the angels, to Joshua, the Christian rest that we've enjoyed in our study of this book to this point. We've also noted a number of warnings in which we ought not, in fact, to lose sight of those great words that have been shared with us, lest we let them slip from us. Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4. And then, of course, at the outset, we looked at an overview of the entire book. This evening, we begin chapter 5. And during the course of that study, we will have the opportunity to look at the great priesthood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This admittedly will be a prime topic up through verse chapter number 8. So not only tonight, but also in the next lesson of the series, we'll have an opportunity to consider the greatness of Christ's priesthood is we can imagine, given that some four chapters have been devoted to it, this was a key argument, and it was a very central issue in the presentation of truth. We will do well to attempt to assimilate that and to understand it even, even tonight as well as again in the next lesson. And so as we give some thought to the great priesthood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, might we divide the lesson into a couple of parts this evening, and for the outset... Let's at least devote a few moments and to reflect from the days of the Old Testament. What were some of the important roles and activities that were carried out by the priest? And what was the distinction between a priest and a high priest? After all, if those matters were of such great importance that they formed the backdrop of the Hebrew writer's arguments, we will need to appreciate those thoughts in the Old Testament to appreciate more deeply his thoughts even for us here in Hebrews. And thus, this opening slide, what about the role of the priest and also that of the high priest underneath the law of Moses? As we have discussed, this is again a very interesting book in that one must be fairly conversant with both Old and New Testament in order to appreciate the fullness of the 13 chapters of Hebrews. 
we're beginning to see another reason as to why. If one weren't rather acquainted with the roles of the priest and how significant those were beneath the law of Moses, perhaps some of the arguments in these chapters might be a bit on the side that would be missed. And so by way of review, why was there a need for a priest at all? One of the first things we recognize, even as the Old Testament began, hints of it in Genesis, and certainly the thoroughness laid before us in Exodus, was the role of a priest. And it was maintained throughout the concourse of all of the rest of the Old Testament. And in fact, even in the New Testament, we still read, even in Hebrews, about the pertinence, the significance, the importance, and in fact, humanity's need for a high priest. You and I could never make it to heaven without one. And so might we thus appreciate this discussion as it begins here. The reason the, high, the priest was of such an important concept was because it points directly at the nature of sin. In fact, because humanity in the Old Testament was clouded with the reality of sin, they had in fact rebelled against their maker. They, because of that, were thus removed from him because sin separates a person from God. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. The priest had an interesting role to, in fact, offer sacrifices, offerings, if you please, and other things, of course, as commanded by God, to expiate to the degree possible for the sins of that day. Thus, when we read in Exodus, for example, or even in Leviticus or Numbers, about the various and sundry things that were to be offered as specified by God. Their purpose was specifically for any number of things related to the reality of sin. There were sin offerings. There were trespass offerings. There were burnt offerings, peace offerings, and in fact, others besides them. All of which were either prior to, during the course of the expedition, or as a symbol of the peacefulness that could be enjoyed with God as a result of the activities of the priest. All of that reminds us of, in fact, the role of sin as it pointed to these realities and how valid those matters are still for us today. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You and I still thus are in that position, apart from some kind of a priest, in which we are thus separated from God and are not thus in fellowship with Him. But yet, if we have a priest today, and we shall valiantly learn that we do, perhaps this one has already paid the expiatory price, and we are thus able to be drawn near to God. In fact, we sometimes sing songs in which we celebrate having been drawn near unto God and the fellowship that we're able to enjoy with Him. The reality of sin, still just as pertinent as it was then. But you might notice next we come to see some of the specifics about those that were able by the decree of God to serve as the priests beneath the old law of Moses. First of all, in their officiation, of course, on the people's part, and also that which was before God, we readily learn that they were required to be of the male descendancy of the man named Aaron. That, of course, helps us appreciate very clearly one of those tribes Namely, that tribe that would have been a portion of the Levite tribe was the one from whom the priests, in fact, would be able to serve and who would allow them to be anointed. As you can see with me, that does make a distinguishing characteristic between the Levite tribe as a whole and, in fact, these who were the descendants of Aaron. 
we might remember that Levi himself had three sons. In fact, that one from whom Aaron descended was only one of them. That was Kohath. There were two others. There was also Merari and Gershon. Thus, the priest could not have come from those other two families. God decreed that they must have been, in fact, of those families that descended specifically from Aaron. In Numbers 3, verses 9 and 10, in those two passages, we do learn a number of details about, again, those who could serve as priests, and those also were the springboard that helps us see a few of the duties that the priest was commanded to carry out. I've listed the primary ones that I was able to discern from the Old Testament. You might notice just a few of these as I have listed them with their scriptures in order. One of the matters from Deuteronomy 13.10, the priest had an obligation to teach and to instruct in light of his knowledge of the revealed will of God. Thus, in part, he was a teacher. He had to instruct and teach that which was the revealed will of God, but that was only one of the things that those priests were to do. You might also note that there were daily sacrifices and offerings which were made at the tabernacle, and the priests had a vital role in carrying out and offering those sacrifices. In addition to that, they were the ones who were commanded to maintain that lamp so that it would burn always there at the, at the nature of the tabernacle. You might notice also the fire. They were the ones to maintain the fire on the altar of burnt offering so that when anyone came to offer their particular beast, the fire would be ready. So they had a job to ensure that the lamp always burned and the fire was always lit. What's more, they also were supposed to prepare the items of the tabernacle when it was time for the tabernacle to move or change locations. The priests were to make ready so that the other families commanded by God could then come and pick up the articles and proceed to move them onward. In fact, the scriptures indicate that the priests were supposed to cover them up. For instance, the Ark of the Covenant and other things, and then the other family members could carry them as God had commanded, and move them elsewhere. Thus, they had a number of things that they were to carry out. No doubt that kept them rather busy, and inasmuch as that was the case, that perhaps reminds us, how does that differ from the high priest? The high priest. We might remember that this individual was again a very important person in the days of the Old Testament. I have been rather brief in highlighting some of the things that we might remember. Beginning in Exodus 28, verse 1, it was God who selected Aaron to be the first high priest and who decreed that his eldest son was to be the successor. And that continued, or was supposed to have continued, throughout the remainder of the Old Testament. Albeit, sadly enough, there were times that God's people, amazingly, selected others apart from God's decree and sometimes turned the high priesthood into a political office. Can you believe it? We sometimes see things like that even happening today, don't we? Something that seems to have a far-removed character to things political or turned into things political so that those in political office can be benefited thereby. The Pope has done that more than once over the course of the last 1,300 years, hasn't he? In fact, not only that, the high priest was particularly anointed. I list that especially for some of the thoughts that we will consider shortly this evening. In addition, 
that high priest was very particular in that there were special garments and attire that he was to wear. Somewhat orthodox, but nonetheless commanded by God. Such things, in fact, is there were a total of eight of these elements that a high priest was supposed to wear. Everything from a particular turban to a particular ephod to a particular set of breeches to a particular kind of cloak to a particular kind even of belt or girdle. All of it was specified by God. And we will have an opportunity in due course on Sunday morning as we reach the latter part of Exodus to see a few of those specifications. Finally, we would be remiss not to notice somewhat about the rather famous Day of Atonement. Basically, in the 16th chapter of Leviticus, throughout much of that chapter, is a very special set of circumstances. There was one day of a year in which the high priest and he alone was allowed and permitted by God to enter not just the, the holy place, but the most holy place. And in so doing, he was to sprinkle particular blood for a role of forgiveness that was to be brought. One can well imagine how special that day must have been. One day a year, as that high priest entered that uh, that particular most holy place, to make that offering as God had commanded. As we give some thought to these matters of priests and high priests, this is just a part of what sets a background for us as we come now to the Hebrew writer's argument. Why does the Hebrew writer mention all of this? Again, as he's writing to individuals who were Hebrews, note the name of the book, there were people who were very well acquainted with what the priests had done, what the high priest was and was supposed to have been, and thus they would have been thoroughly familiar with this. And yet the Hebrew writer uses that as a strong argument for remaining loyal to Jesus. With that said, what is the next element in that person's argument? I'd submit we should start in chapter 5, verse 1. As that chapter begins we have immediately the following statement. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. The Hebrew writer has not jumped in in midstream, if you will. He has already introduced the subject of the high priest that had started as early as chapter 3, verse 1, when he specifically said, Jesus Christ is our high priest. Thus, when he arrived at chapter 4, verses 14 and 15, he again affirmed the priesthood of Jesus. And now he expounds upon that same idea. As he expounds upon it, he offers to the people of that day, and of course to you and me too, the following sets of ideas as qualifications for the priesthood of Jesus. Any person that was acquainted with the Old Testament would be quick to say, but is Jesus qualified to be a high priest? They knew the qualifications, and hence the Hebrew writer first sets out these arguments as to why the Lord was qualified as a high priest and why, in fact, he is even superior to any of the high priests of the Old Testament. Let's begin to look at some of the points that the inspired writer makes. The first thing he sets before us is to remind them, who again selected by decree the high priest of the Old Testament? It was God that selected Aaron. Aaron didn't volunteer for it, and he didn't appoint himself. 
Moses did not appoint him. It was God who hand-selected Aaron as the initial high priest and decreed that his eldest son was to be his successor. Let's now ask about the Lord. We find immediately the statement is made that it was God who selected Christ as the high priest. Thus, it's a parallel situation in that regard. Jesus didn't just a priori presume the case. God handpicked him and put him in the position of the high priest. Thus, that would have been a strong consideration for those reading this or hearing this read in the days of the Hebrews, wouldn't it? Having been selected by God, we notice in Hebrews 5, verses 4, 5, and 6, this is the way that argument is placed. And no man taketh this honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. The inspired writer quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7 in which God, a thousand years before Jesus was ever born, on that occasion he said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And on that occasion he was not talking about David, although David wrote that. David was pinning that which would be descriptive of the Christ a millennium into the future. And it was God referring to him, I have chosen you as my son. God had foreordained, if you please, the high priesthood of the Lord. And that lovely thought should echo in our minds still this evening. That thought only brings us to the next notion that we might well notice. Just as surely as those high priests of the Old Testament were, of course, humans, that means they were familiar with and acquainted with the human environment and the human lot. And now the author makes this statement about Jesus. Considering that parallel note, notice verse 7 with me if you would. Speaking of Christ, it says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him, that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. That should in fact echo in our minds a very strong sentiment still. Notice what was said about Jesus. We think about this mighty, this great figure upon earth. He was the Son of God. He, of course, could have called legions of angels. He was powerful, able to work miracles, raise people from the dead. And yet of him it says, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, our Savior was brought to tears. In the discussion that relates to the matter under consideration tonight, our Savior was brought to strong crying and tears. Perhaps our mind takes us back to the Garden of Gethsemane, when on the very night prior to those individuals putting Him to death, our Savior prayed not once, not twice, but thrice, Father, if it be Thy will, take this cup from me, or let this cup pass from me. Jesus well knew the anguish that was to be His the next day. In fact, he was already in the midst of great mental turmoil and anguish. Luke reminds us, doesn't he, in Luke 22 and 23, the scenes of what his sweat was like that night. Those matters remind us of the greatness of his mental con condition as he approached the events of that next day. 
For you see, he well knew he was carrying there not just his body, but a body that was loaded with your sins and with mine. And the sins with every human being who has ever lived from Adam onward. He was carrying them all. You and I, in our better moments at least, we know what a burden sin is. We know what a guilty conscience is like when we've done something we shouldn't have and Dad finds out about it and he makes you feel about this tall. Jesus carried every sin of every person, of every age, of every element in time. With strong crying and tears, he offered up supplications and prayers to the Father. And friend, he did that for you and me. He went through all of that for you and for me. Think about what a high priest we have. Could it ever be said of Aaron that he did that? Or any of Aaron's sons? Well, of course not. Or what about the later priests of the Old Testament, like those that Solomon appointed? Surely they don't compare with the greatness of our Savior. As the Hebrew writer sets before them the greatness of the high priest that we enjoy, do you suppose that they would have thought twice about leaving Jesus and have gone back to any ancient high priest that was even no longer, in fact, able to serve rightly before God? That was the whole point of the argument, wasn't it? You might also notice next on that sheet something else we've learned about the priesthood of Jesus. Perhaps the most famous of the statements in this particular chapter, beginning in verse 8, Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. We notice that this high priest is now discussed in rather different ways than any of the ancient old ones. This one is an author. That means founder, the initial one. He's the one that sets before us the author, if you please, of our salvation, making it possible. But isn't it still to be noted that that salvation is for someone? Not for everyone, but he says, unto them that obey him. We are required to be obedient if we expect to receive eternal salvation. No obedience, no salvation. It's that simple. And yet, when we faithfully obey the grandeur and majesty of His commandments, appreciating that they're not grievous, 1 John 5, 3, but yet in them is redounded the majesty and promise of eternal life, that helps us see that the end of our road, the end of our way, and the reward that is promised and offered is truly sufficient motivation to lead us on that pathway leading into everlasting life and to everlasting glory. You'll notice as we see onward near the bottom of that screen, this greatness of Christ is reminded of us in yet one other way, His experience. Notice it says He learned obedience. That does not in any way say He had been disobedient before. It means through the course of His experience. He honed and appreciated for us the greatness of obedience and he exemplified it even in his own life. You see, he was obedient to that law of Moses beneath which he lived in the flesh. He kept it throughout the fullness of the way God intended. Thus, he can serve as a pattern of how obedient you and I should be to his gospel and to his way of eternal life. Those matters only help us see that when the Lord thus offered sacrifice, here we have a majestic difference between his offering and that of the high priest of the Old Testament. This will be one of the deep arguments as we approach the end of chapter 7.
However, the author at least hints at it here. Aaron, for instance, first had to offer a sacrifice for himself. Jesus didn't, of course. He didn't have any sins that needed to be forgiven. He could thus approach before his heavenly Father without offering sins for himself. And thus, near the close of chapter 7, he puts it in words like this. In verse 27, the inspired writer affirmed, Who needeth not daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's, for this he did once when he offered up himself. The Lord had no need, you see, to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. He was not encumbered with any of them. And yet he offered one sacrifice for sins forever. Aren't we blessed? We need not go to a tabernacle a few days a week and take the best lamb or goat or turtle dove or other kind of animal that we have in our flock. Christ offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And in that sense was the perfect mediator and the ideal high priest to approach unto God on our behalf and expiate for those sins identically and ideally. It's no wonder that the author continues to think about the priesthood of Christ. And he does so now from this vantage point. This is the next set of ideas he proceeds to mention to us. And it truly is a rather profound set of thoughts indeed. One of the names that becomes so familiar to us in the study of Hebrews is that of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is mentioned a number of times throughout this book, isn't he? And yet it is at this point, chapter number 5, verse 10, that we read this. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus' priesthood is compared to that of Melchizedek's. I wonder in what way are they fairly compatible? In what way are they comparable? Isn't it interesting? When the Hebrew writer made discussion of comparison to the high priesthood, he did not choose Aaron. He went back long before Aaron, and he chose the priesthood of Melchizedek. And it was in regard to that that he said, Christ is forever a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I'd invite us over the next few moments to at least ask, why is that such an important argument? You may have already noticed the second point I put on that slide. It would seem to me this is the single deepest argument in the entirety of the Bible. It stretches all the way back to Genesis, leads all the way to the end of time, and it is so profound in that it selects what seems to be such a small-mentioned man in the Old Testament, and yet sets him as the pinnacle of the very type of the priesthood of Jesus. And the presentation is a rather great one. Over the next few moments, what are some of the things that are comparable between Christ and Melchizedek? I've listed the very beginning one in these ways. First of all, notice that a number of times the priesthood of Jesus is at least said to be after the order of Melchizedek. You'll notice that first of all in chapter 5, verses 6 and 10, in chapter 6, verse number 20, chapter 7, verses 11, 17, and 21. And thus, having been mentioned that often, surely this was a point well worth their consideration and well worth ours as well. No doubt the place to begin would be to ask, who is this Melchizedek? 
If Christ is compared to him so many times, who was he? Where did he live? Who were his parents? Who descended from him? What city did he live in? Of which tribe of Israel was he? Those are just a few of the questions that might be asked. We might be shocked at the Hebrew writer's answers. First of all, let's begin. At least I've tried to go in order. If we return to Genesis 14, we find the only literal mention in terms of his actual living on earth in all of the Bible. In Genesis 14, near the close of that chapter, we encounter this gentleman named Melchizedek. We immediately learn that, in fact, he was the king of Salem. We furthermore learn from the same context he was a priest in Salem, priest of Salem. Immediately we encounter a man who simultaneously served as priest and king. That could be said of nobody under the law of Moses. David wasn't simultaneously a priest and king. Solomon wasn't simultaneously a priest and king. They were kings, but they were not priests because they did not descend through Aaron. But immediately we have a man who was king and priest at the same time. That isn't all. Notice something about this man's name. And also notice about the role that he served. You might notice the name Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. Doesn't that remind us of Jesus? Who else but Christ is the ultimate and final king of righteousness? Furthermore, You'll notice that this Melchizedek was king of Salem, and the word Salem in Old Testament, shalom, means peace. Jesus, of course, is the bringer of peace. He's the prince of peace, Isaiah 9, verse 6. He promised his followers in John 14, 27, My peace I leave with you. We learn later in the New Testament, in fact, about the peacefulness of God that passes all understanding through the nature of the Christ, Philippians 4, 7. This Jesus, both king and priest, just like Melchizedek was. And immediately we learn from Zechariah chapter 6 verse 12 that this activity on the part of Christ was even foretold in the Old Testament. God foretold that the day was coming when priest and king would be embodied in the same person. Jesus, of course, fulfilled that. He serves today as king over his kingdom, the beautiful church. And he, of course, serves as the high priest of God, Hebrews 3.1. And as we continue to study other parallels, you might notice one other that leads us also to that point. To say that Christ is priest and king simultaneously. We also readily learn that very next thing that challenges to see that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Here was the father of the Hebrew nation. When he was in his greatness, he had just gone with an army and retrieved Lot, his nephew, from those who had come and taken him captive. In the battle of the kings in Genesis 14, Abraham defeated them sufficiently to return his nephew. Here he was at the height of victory, the height of strength, the plateau or zenith of his capabilities, and yet we readily appreciate that on that occasion, he's the one that offered tithes to Melchizedek. And furthermore, Melchizedek blessed him. You might notice quickly the Hebrew writer uses that as a very vital point. For he says, the better always blesses the inferior. Hence, Melchizedek must at that moment have been greater than Abraham. 
Would that not have made these Hebrews scratch their heads? Here's the man who they looked to as the father of their nation, and yet Melchizedek was noted to be the one who in fact blessed him. It wasn't the other way around. Thus, the greatness of Melchizedek was set forth, and it was he who is likened in typification to the very priesthood of Jesus. As we look at some of the other things to be noted, the list only continues. Notice some of the other things that also are said about this Melchizedek and about his relationship to the Christ. In terms of those tithes that Abraham paid to Melchizedek, doesn't that remind us of the service and the gifts that you and I offer to the Christ? It is amazing to see the parallels, isn't it? Even in this early stage of the Old Testament to see Jesus written in every verse and to see the Savior pointed out so dramatically even from the early stages during even those days when Abraham was living. In Hebrews chapter 7, we now find the next set of answers to the questions that I raised earlier. Do you recall I asked, who was Melchizedek's parents? Where did he come from? I'd like us to read verse 3 of Hebrews 7 and listen to the inspired answers. Speaking of Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. There we have exactly our answer. Even the Hebrew writer appreciated that questions would be asked. Who was this Melchizedek's parents and where did he come from? Did he have the right lineage? The Hebrew writer affirmed, without father, without mother, without beginning of days, without end of life. That does not mean that Melchizedek was born in some kind of supernatural way in which God reached down and put him here on earth without him having been born. That's not what the writer affirms. What he affirms is, as far as the writer of the book of Genesis told us, he made no mention of Melchizedek's lineage, no mention of his ancestry, no mention of his mother, no mention of his father, no mention of his grandparents. We have no idea about his family. But yet we do know he was priest and king in Jerusalem. And we do know that in that sense he served as a type of the greatness of the Messiah who was to come 2,000 years later. And thankfully that Messiah has come. Notice also in that verse, neither beginning of days nor end of life. There's not a single record of Melchizedek's death in all the Bible. Not a single record of his birth either. But he lived. Those points were used by the writer to affirm you don't know anything about him and yet he served in the very roles that was later to be made so important to the Christ. And it is in that regard there's one more verse that we should note. If you are of a habit to mark certain verses, you might want to mark this one. It's found in the 110th Psalm. As far as why Melchizedek is such an important character in the Old Testament and why he is used so greatly by the Hebrew writer in the New Testament, we would do well to revisit the 110th Psalm in the Old Testament. But one verse in that chapter will suffice us for this evening. It is verse number 4. Apart from that mentioned in Genesis 14, listen to the way in which Melchizedek is described now. The Lord has sworn and will not repent. 
Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Initially in Genesis 14 in our study of Melchizedek, that occurred before the law of Moses came into effect and it occurred before the selection of Aaron and the Aaronic priesthood. However, Psalm 110 was written approximately 450 years after the Aaronic priesthood had begun. And yet God, through the writer David, made note that the Levitical priesthood is not the greatest of priesthoods. He said, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. The writer was looking ten centuries down the stream of time. He was speaking about the coming of one who would not be after the Levitical priesthood. He would not be a priest like that of Aaron. His priesthood would be far more comparable to that of Melchizedek's. Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. And the deepness of that argument and the embodiment of the Christ as he fulfilled the greatest priesthood of all is that which we'll use to close that slide and to close our lesson tonight. As far as the final comments, we are now seeing so clearly the Hebrew writer's point. The priesthood of Jesus is far greater than the priesthood of Aaron. Notice I entitled the lesson, Christ's Superior Priesthood. So far, Christ superior to the prophets, superior to the angels, superior to Moses, superior to Joshua. Now we also find his priesthood is far and away greater than the priesthood of Aaron or any of the other Levitical priests. Thus, I strongly suspect that those who heard this message first would have thought twice about forsaking the Christ and returning to a priesthood that was so inferior to the one they were then enjoying. And ought not we to be so thankful today for a priest like Jesus, one who in fact as a high priest is the perfect high priest, no flaws, mistakes, errors, or other things that would, marnish, that would tarnish or mar in any way his service. Perhaps one of the final comments then should be this. In Hebrews 7 verse number 12, We'll close our lesson with this one final passage. Speaking about this priesthood of Jesus, the author uses this point as an important springboard to what's going to come next. He says, For the priesthood being changed, there is made a necessity, a change also of the law. Are we able to perceive his argument? If the law of Moses had been enforced for so long, and yet now there is a priest who is not of the order of Aaron, but rather of the order of Melchizedek. That means there had to have been a change in the law. The law of Moses is no longer in force. Do you note the subtle point? He's telling them, you can't go back and serve beneath that law even if you want to. It was nailed to the cross and a change of the priesthood has forced a change in that law. There is now a better law in place. Christ's perfect superior law. It'll be that better law of which we'll read in the 8th chapter of this book. Tonight, are you serving faithfully beneath that law and faithfully to the perfect high priest? If you are, then praise be unto God for your obedience and may each of us continue to walk faithfully in that way for eternal life waits those who walk in that fashion. But if you are not walking faithfully in that way, Maybe you've never obeyed the gospel initially. Maybe at this point you're still an alien from the commonwealth of Israel. If that's the situation in your life, I hope our study of the priesthood has caused you to be uncomfortable, 
I hope that you are in fact not at ease because you know what you're missing. If we could be of assistance to you in entering the kingdom, it is Christ who will introduce you into that kingdom. He's the one that can add you. You need to believe Him to be the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess His sweet name as the Son of God and be baptized. If you've done that, but you no longer are living true to it, come back to your first love. Honor Him by, in fact, coming before Him and acknowledging those sins. Repent of them and let us pray on your behalf as you confess them. If we could be of assistance in either of those ways, won't you let it be known, even now, while together we stand and while we sing.